Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome into the Keeping It 1000 podcast presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Use promo code DNVR when you sign up. The Legends editions today when myself and George Carl, we take a walk down memory lane and we discuss the history of the Denver Nuggets with some of the greats that played. And of course, you see him on screen today. We are joined by the legend himself, Mr. Fat Lever. Fat, thank you so much for taking time. This is a real honor for me and a a real honor for Nuggets fans to, to get to hear these Great stories from the 80s from, from you. How are you doing today? I'm hanging in there, Adam. How are you doing? I want to wave so everybody knows who I am so they don't confuse me with Coach Carl. So <laughs> just making sure. And everybody will remember the stories because the mind isn't always as good sometimes. Right, Coach? Well, you kicked my ass a lot of nights. You were one of the, I'm, I mean, I know a lot of good stories I had you, but I thought you were one of the most – Unappreciated basketball players that ever played in the NBA. I mean, you were so good at both ends of the court. Um, Doug just wore your ass out, put you on the best player every night, and then expected you to get 25 along with that. Uh, and you ran. You, I mean, I mean, some of the guys I'm watching today, like um, right now, I'm I'm in love with Jaw Morant. Mm. And I remember, I mean, I'm not saying you're like John Moran, but you were, and you know, you were as athletic as a guard as the NBA had, but no one seemed to love you as much as some of the other guys. Well, you know, that's a nice, nice thought, uh, coach. But at the same time, you know, that love comes from your teammates and from the people that you played around in Denver. So they realized that and um, they understood. But one of the things that I always liked to appreciate about myself was that. I like that. I don't. I never liked the limelight. And one of the things that I always said about being drafted by Portland, uh, coming from a small city in, Tucson, in uh, Arizona, Tucson, I didn't really have to worry about being in the spotlight, and I didn't like it. And so going to Portland for my first two years, it was a big market, the only game in town, but you also always had that privacy and friendship of everyone around. You didn't have to worry about you know, the nightlife or the big grandiose things of a football game or other stars around you uh, in other sports. So uh, I appreciate the recommendations as far as the not being recognized, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm okay with that. That's good. It seems like a lot of the guys that have thrived in Denver over the years have had that same sort of personality, that they've enjoyed the size of Denver and and, and what it brought you, the feel of a big city without all of the the hustle and bustle of a Los Angeles or New York. So I feel like you're not alone in that. Well, Adam, I think it also comes down to being there with the Denver Broncos. And, of course, the Avalanche wasn't there at the time. Um, so you didn't have all the sports, but at that time, the Denver Broncos – bigger sports than most you know cities and at that time on top of the world so you know they were always not second class citizens but not as uh well known and most was okay with that and i think that gives you that more of a fan appeal to be able to relate to different people than you were opposed to hiding from the spotlight right and i think that's one of the positives of being in denver 
Well, and you can see it. We have a live chat, people tuning in live now, obviously, to watch this. And when I announced we were having Fat Lever on last week, started announcing on the shows, I was surprised at how many people said, that's my all-time favorite nugget. That's my number one. And we even see it in the chat right now. A bunch of people chiming in and say, Fat, that's my favorite nugget of all time. Do you still hear that from a lot of people, uh, You know, a, not just one of the all-time greats, but also a fan favorite? I do. And, you know, I think it's from the standpoint that a lot of things that I did and going back to the Calvin Nat Fat Lever basketball camp <laughs> in the days, those I still hear some from some of those kids. And one of the greats wow. that Coach Coach called was uh, Chauncey Billups and uh, Pearl Murder was always at the camps. And so we had that relationship then as far as being out there at camp every day doing things and not necessarily – uh, publicizing it, except for getting kids out there, stuff like that. So those are the good memories when you hear stories from Chauncey Billups, whether he's going to call me the OG or something like that now. But back then, I'm sure he was calling me different names. But <laughs> it was much appreciated because that goes back to timing. Chauncey might want to call you up and see if you can play for him. <laughs> I think there's well, a lot of teams right now that could use a point guard. A lot of teams, maybe one here in Denver for yeah. the moment. We've only been talking about that for three years. It was one of those things where I was watching the uh, Clay Thompson comeback. Yeah. And I'm sure everybody saw it because it's one of the most popular things out there. I mean, it made you so excited about not just him coming back, but about the playing days and giving you the um, possibility that you can come back. And I sent a text out to one of my friends that's with Golden State. And I said, do they have a 24-second contract? Because watching all this, it makes me want to come back and try to play, which has no reality behind it. And we just got a chuckle out of it. But that's just how much the notoriety has come back, uh, not just for the game of basketball, but for someone like Clay Thompson, who's been out for almost two years now. George, you talk about connection. You always use that word. Here on this show, we always use the word vibes. But I think it means the same thing, this connection, this idea of what you feel. I feel like the Golden State Warriors are among the best teams I've ever seen at just hype. I mean, the, the hype they created. And when I say they, I mean the players, not the organization. The hype they created for Klay Thompson in his return, to me, was special. Every team would be excited about a big player. But they just have this way of celebrating each other before the game even begins that I feel bleeds into how they play and why they play with so much energy and joy and connectedness. Well, I think the thing that Coach Smith always kind of told me, um, he, he always thought pro basketball was too serious. <laughs> it was too stressful, too angry, too uh, uh, maybe too physical at times. You know, it was more like a fight. And, that, you know, and he said, basketball should be fun. Basket, pra basketball practice should be fun. Yeah. Uh, you should have fun before practice and after practice. And, you know, and then there's, you know, maybe the Bobby Knight type of coach that doesn't make anything fun. And uh, I think I think Coach Smith was a little bit right that uh, – that, you know, we, we don't, I think we've talked about this on the show a couple times, that you don't enjoy the successes, the wins, as much as the pain that you get in losing. Right. And I think that's even gotten worse. The money has gotten bigger. And because the money getting bigger, I think the pain of, of failure has gotten more painful. But the winning hasn't changed. It's actually probably gotten at least a little less more fun if that makes any sense at all. And um, and I agree with you. Golden State has a little bit of a magic. You know, they get along. You can tell they get along. It's There's a harmony to them. And, and uh, I think if they win the championship this year, it'll be one of the great stories of the NBA. Mm. Oh, I would agree with you 100%. If they won the championship this year after what they've gone through and the way they've done it, and stayed in the limelight. Once again, we talk about big markets, small markets. Uh, being in Golden State in the Bay Area, that's a huge market. And they got worldwide, worldwide fans. So when you have that type of an atmosphere, the pressure's on you. And when you're winning, it's even better for you. So yeah. if you have the Warriors winning the championship this year, and they're the, they would definitely be the underdogs, but now they're higher up in the standings as far as the ratings go in regards to the competition. 
and they're not fully healthy yet. So right. expect yeah, a lot of good things from them. There's nobody playing really good basketball right now. I mean, Golden State's playing as well as anybody in the NBA. And getting Clay back, and they, ain't, they haven't even played with Draymond yet. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to tell you, I think there, there's a, there's a, I don't know what, there's a good karma to Steph Curry. Yeah, there is. There's an That's energy. Part of what we're getting at. Yeah. There's an energy of positivity that comes yeah. with Steph, and I think that's the reason they. I I give Steph a lot of the credit for what's going on in Golden State. Plus, he's a hell of a basketball player, mm-hmm. and I think he's maybe a, a, a almost a better leader than he is basketball player. <laughs> Well, we're going to get into a lot of this next week, George, where we, we get together and kind of look at the current nuggets and some of the things you're observing for them. But I want to spend here the next time going back and, and as we always do, really hear from uh, from the players, in this case, Fat Lever, about another golden era of Denver Nuggets basketball. But I want to start here, Fat. So the NBA exploded in popularity in the 80s. And in the 70s, you had the ABA and the NBA. It still hadn't you know, quite gone fully mainstream the way it did in the 80s. So I'm curious, as you're growing up, playing high school basketball and then eventually in college. Who were you watching and who were you idolizing as basketball players? Here's a funny story. When I was in high school and I was being recruited to go to college, this is my senior year, I was actually recruited to Colorado by a coach at DU by the name of Alvin Gentry. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. And the story gets even crazier because one of my favorite players – was a guy by the name of David Thompson. Okay. <laughs> and so Alvin and I to this day laugh and joke about it because I committed to him to say that and I didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't made my all all my six official high school visits yet. So back then I was talking to Alvin and said, hey, I went on my recruiting trip there. And I was like, oh, by the way, if you can give me a David Thompson poster, I'll come to come to school, come to your wow. school. I didn't make it to his school. (laughs) So so going back and thinking about the David Thompson and players during that era, that was ABA coming into the NBA. I wasn't that familiar with the uh, ABA until I got a chance to spend a lot of time around Doug and Chopper and the guys during that time when I was actually in Denver, but in high school, all we heard was the high flying David Thompson dunking and, and being at North Carolina State and taking the nickels and dimes and quarters off the backboard. Right. And, you know, so I remember at, at photo day, we had guys in high school climbing up the ladder with a quarter on the top of it, picking it off, saying they were jumping up, taking quarters off the backboard to <laughs> simulate David Thompson in those days. So, um, yeah, it changed. But I think that was the growth of the NBA during the 80s. And just like Coach uh, Carl made to mention to Golden State uh, and what they're doing now and their championship runs, I think the Lakers uh, was that type of a team back then with Showtime coming in, bringing the notoriety, bring the game back to what the fans wanted to see and appreciate. And fortunate enough for my Denver Nuggets team, we were able to be a part of that. And, you know, Showtime was something that brought excitement to it. You had the star marquee players, uh, Magic Johnson or, or Steph Curry, uh, Kareem opposed to in comparison to a Clay, and all the other teammates that had their roles as um, Byron Scott and James Worthy and those guys did. So that's 80s area era coming up was similar to what we see now. And the only bad part about it in my eyes is it's still in California, opposed to Colorado, right. Arizona, or somewhere else where, right. where you live and you call home. No question about it. I, I want to ask you if we get into the Blazers. I know you were drafted by the Blazers, played a couple seasons there. And you played for Dr. Jack Ramsey, you know, one of the all-time great basketball minds. What was your – we go quickly through the Blazers era, but kind of what was what, – what did you – really take away from Dr. Jack Ramsey and coming into the NBA playing for him? And, and what were those first couple of years with the Blazers like? It was great, Adam. I mean, I always say that Jack Ramsey taught me how to play in the NBA by going to Portland and teaching me the game as far as how he wanted to be taught and the way he wanted to be played. And being a, I would consider myself a coachable player, and he was able to do that. I uh, wasn't thrown into the limelight. 
because they still had Darnell Valentine there as a guard, Jim Paxson, Jeff right. Lamp, uh, Peter Verhoeven was one of the guys that came in with me, but it gave me a chance to play and learn the game of the NBA style and what it was all about because Dr. Jack was a disciplinarian and to the point where he taught the game the way he wanted everyone to play as a team. And I admired that because that's the way I played in high school and in college under Coach Wolk and my high school coach. So I got a chance to learn the game, the NBA game, from Dr. Jack. And at that time, Rick Adelman was actually a volunteer assistant coach coming volunteer. in. So wow. he was there. Jim Lynham, Bucky Buckwalter was the other staff members that were there on the staff. And I remember when Jim Lynham would drop, uh, drop a play and Rick Adamant would be on the bench at the end of the bench as a volunteer coach saying, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. So then he'd go tell him why. And then we'd come over to play. And then all of a sudden, Jack would come over and say, where'd you guys come up with that at? So to me, listening to Rick Adelman, uh, Jim Lynham, uh, Bucky Buckwalter as the guys who coached the second team, which I was on, and the first team was always coached by Coach Jack. Oh, wow. We competing against those guys. So it gave me a great time to learn and to be there. And then uh, that was one of the reasons I did. We did the Calvin Nat Fat Lever basketball camp because we did the same type of camps under Jack in Portland. And as we talk about Oregon, the Phantom uh, screen shirt that I wear, that's where it all started. Uh, I do some consulting for Phantom Screens uh, uh, in Oregon because of the relationship to this day that uh, we wow. established. Uh, and still till now, uh, we go back and participate and do stuff with the Blazers. But I think most and foremost, Jack Ramsey and the staff in Portland taught me how to play in the NBA. You got a, a basketball PhD your first two two years, and I wonder how much of that is valuable to young players when you go in with some great leaders and great basketball minds. Coach, uh, what what is your relationship or what was your relationship to Dr. Jack and what, what kind of coach was he? You there, coach? Did I lose you? Oh, oh, you're talking to me? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, you know, what's funny, you talked about Rick Allman. The, when they hired Rick Allman, they interviewed two guys, me and Rick Allman. <laughs> Jack, I had a great relationship with Jack Ramsey, but a closer relationship with Stu Van, uh, Stu Inman. Stu Inman. Mm -hmm. Stu Inman was the president and general manager. And I, I remember to this day one thing Jack Ramsey told me. He says, no matter how close you are in, in your coaching staff, in your family of basketball, when you're, NBA, when you're a head coach in the NBA, you got to be able to stand by yourself. And you're always, there's always going to be situations throughout a year uh, that you're going to have to stand by yourself. And I always remember that because I thought it was kind of a crazy thing to say to me. But after going through the years of coaching, Jack Ramsey remained a great friend. He's one of the true geniuses of the game. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people think Bill Walsh is a big football guru. I think Jack Ramsey is one of the top NBA pastime coaches. Mm. Um, let's move on now to when you get traded to Denver. You play against the Showtime Lakers, by the way, in that first playoff series, which will come in a little bit later. As you mentioned, your career kind of weaved in and out of the Showtime Lakers. But 1984, you're traded to the Denver Nuggets, along with Wayne Cooper and Calvin Natt. And my first question was, were you close with those two guys prior to coming to Denver? You end up spending basically a whole decade together. But were you guys close right out of the gate from, from your time in Portland? Uh, what, was that, what were those relationships like? Adam, the best thing of the trade is set, as far as for me going to Denver and getting the chance to play was because I did get traded with Calvin and with Wayne Cooper. Wow. And I say that because I had never been traded before. And they had been through the trade circles in the NBA uh, before. So as soon as it was announced that the trade was going down and it happened, uh, you know, I'm fine. I'm looking for Calvin and Cooper because they're the ones that were going to direct me as to what was going to happen. And it goes back to our plan days um, in Portland. We were very close and we established that relationship. Uh, even though Wayne and I were like, 
uh, second fiddle on the team and Jim Paxson, Michael Thompson and Calvin Nat were the stars of the team. But Calvin would always have some type of event at his house that would invite the team over and have that camaraderie. So when he and Brenda did something, everybody was involved in it. So the first thing that happened when the trade took place is I'm following their lead. Wherever they were going, I was right behind them. Because if I was just a throw in in the deal, at least I was going in with someone that I knew had been around the game, had played the game, understood it. And I had spent time with them on and off the court. So we were able to have that camaraderie going in, knowing that Calvin was going to be the uh, main guy because he was the fearless leader. Uh, I was the mild-mannered point guard, and Coop was the enforcer in the back. And mm. so that's the way we looked at it. And I was reminiscing at some of the old pictures as far as Doug Moe meeting us for the first time at the airport uh, when the trade had taken place. And we were just laughing and, and giggling. And Wayne looked at me and he says, you know what? Every time we're at the airport with Jack, Jack was always cursing at us for some reason, especially after a loss. <laughs> and we get to Colorado to Denver and Doug is there laughing and everyone else is just having a good, a good time. So, I mean, the atmosphere that we established and one of the things like, uh, I forget about Michael Thompson, who was on that team with us in, um, in, in uh, uh, Portland. And he would always have dinners or some type of event at this restaurant called Victoria Station. It was like a train station, and all the players would go by there. And that's how Denver, or or Portland was so small because we would go in there. Everyone would know who we were, but they wouldn't disrupt us or say anything. And just sit there and eat, talk, have a good time, and then go back home. So when the trade came down, everybody's going to Denver. It was like, okay, I'm not ready for it. But Wayne and Calvin and their wives and families were because they had been through it before. And for me, it was like, okay, I'm just going to follow their lead. And their lead hadn't put me in the wrong direction at any point up to that point. So I was happy to go with them. Who the hell did Portland get in the trade? Uh, some guy by the name of Kiki Vandaway. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was one of the biggest trades because at that time, it was like a five for one. And there was a couple other guys who was thrown into it, uh, uh, myself, Wayne, and, and, and Calvin for Kiki. And then there was two draft picks that were eventually added to the pick, to the right. uh, trade. And it's interesting, too, because we're going to weave back to Kiki here in a couple of years as we kind of go on some of these playoff matchups. But, um, you know, so we get into you know, what were your impressions of, of this Denver Nuggets team before you arrived, as you're arriving, before you meet anybody? Did you have any preconceived notions of what they were? Yes. Remember the No Moss game? The No Moss? Yes. Oh, I remember it. <laughs> that was the game where we were playing in, in Portland, and this was my second year, and Doug was screaming at his team. Uh, Kiki was on the team, and Michael Levin, Mike Evans and TR and all those guys, Alex was on the team. He was like, none of you guys are playing defense, so just gotcha. let them score. Right, 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 yes. Okay, so <laughs> that was the first inclination of what was what I was looking for when I was going there because during that game, Clyde Drexler was on our team, and I think we literally was fighting over who's going to take the ball out <laughs> because whoever took the ball out wasn't going to get a chance to score. Right. <laughs> All you do, you get the ball, you drove the length of the floor, and you got a layup. Literally no defense. Yeah, this was, Doug Moe called a timeout and said, because he was so upset with how the Nuggets were playing defense. So he called a timeout and he said, guys, don't guard them. Don't, yeah. don't. And they said, what do you mean? Just let them score. Don't guard. And for the final, I don't, it wasn't that long, maybe a minute or so, the final yeah. minute. They really just, yeah, Portland just walks the ball down the lane and lays it up with no defense. <laughs> it was, Doug Moe was not afraid of making a, an absurd point. And I think that was the first time I actually heard a coach get fined for doing something <laughs> like that because that was a it was a, it was a five thousand dollar fine, but it was a lot at that time. So I think we had such a big laugh of it because you know everybody wants to score. So yeah. Clyde was like, you know, missed everything, and he was going down getting left. I can make a layup, so let me get the ball. I'm not taking it out this time. Throwing it. So that was one of the first things that was a laughing matter for us, and we ended up winning the game and. Um, you know, when the trade happens, that's one of the first things I think about, oh, what are we going to get into now? Are we going to go through that? Whereas, right. you know, Wayne and myself and Calvin, we we wanted to play defense because that was some of the 
things that made us get easier baskets. And right. so everyone looked at the Nuggets as just a offensive type of a team in the 80s. And believe it or not, there's a lot of work put into the defensive side. So now we get into coming into the Nuggets. I, it's funny because I'm a Nuggets you know, fan. I was born in 1984. So this is obviously I, – I, I'm learning about this through history. Okay, thanks, not, Adam. Where the data? <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. But uh, so we're, we come into the season, and I just think of this Nuggets team as you know growing through step by step. But really, Calvin Nat, yourself, uh, and Wayne Cooper – you know, along with Alex English, that was the core of the Nuggets. And, and I just had not realized for whatever reason that three of those four guys were came over in a trade. And so even though there is this Nuggets history that extended prior to that with some great players and some great teams, 1984, that season when you came over, really was that core coming together for the first time. And that core stayed together for quite a while, uh, for quite a, a number of seasons. I'm sure George will join us here in just a second. He's working on something with his computer there. Um, so they... But wildly enough, I read some old stories. Doug Moe was actually on the hot seat coming into that season. Uh, I'm told. Did you did do you have any recollection of that uh, about Doug Moe maybe being on the hot seat? I didn't, and you know, at that time we didn't even think about it. And mm. so when we got there, we were just happy to be a part of it because we, when I say we, myself, Calvin, and and Coop knew what our roles were supposed to be once we got there because Doug mm. had that conversation with us. And so when we talk about the defensive side of it, we did a lot of defensive work on uh, and practices and under Doug Ball. And so we go back, Dan Issel was on that team too the first year. So right. that was a great, great learning experience for me. And then the all-time great Chopper Travellini, the trainer was there. So we got a chance to go in and be with a good group of guys that the uh, Nuggets depended upon on and off the court. So it was a matter of myself, Wayne, and and Coop going in, uh, being a part of something that was already pretty good. So right. Hanslick was there already. So we had some of the main focal point guys that Doug wanted to work with. And the guys that he really wanted to work with was going to be Alex, Calvin, and in the first year, Dan Issel. And all we had to do was get them to basketball. Coop yeah. knew he was going to block shots, and everybody right. knew their roles, and they accepted it. So right. I think going in – that was the first thing that we thought about was blending in with Dan Essel and Alex English and, and Bill Hanslick. That was the first and foremost thing. Now um, I know that you and you and Alex English have formed formed a friendship and and you know continue to be friends. What were you guys friends prior to joining up on teams? Or and if not, what was sort of how quickly did that friendship form when you guys first got on the same team together? I just knew of him as a player and had never spent any time with him. But once we got there, that goes back to that welcoming atmosphere right. because he showed arms open, everything to anyone that came in. And that's where I, I still go back to. It was almost like the feud of what they gave out for Halloween because there was always that feud between the Broncos and and uh, the Nuggets as far as what candies they gave out for Halloween. Really? <laughs> so I don't know the story. And Alex was just like never got involved in it. And so, okay. you know, the things that he did off the court as far as being one of the first guys to get the uh, All-Stars to donate their uh, checks to charity. Yeah. Uh, those are the things that he did. And, you know, he was a super, super, superstar that kept it low key, but really enjoyed all of his teammates and shared his enjoyments. What is the passing game? This is Doug Moe's famous offense, the passing. One of few offenses that has a name, the passing game. Adam, I think it still exists today. The only thing with the passing game that they don't do now is some want five passes. Okay, right. Some want the ball to go from one side to the court to shift. So once it breaks down and you get that mismatch, now you can go one-on-one, -on -one, which we see a lot of today. But the difference between the passing game back then and now is the ball movement doesn't move back and forth. The defense doesn't shift. And there's not a certain amount of passes because if uh, a great offensive player gets the ball now, he's not going to make three or four passes and wait for it to come back to him. As soon as he gets it, he's going to the basket to try to get a shot or get to the basket or take the three. Was it a big contrast going from Jack Ramsey to Doug Moe personality-wise? <laughs> early, early on it was but here's the difference I said earlier about Jack Ramsey he taught me how to play in the NBA 
And then I look at Doug Moe. Doug Moe let me play in the NBA because there wasn't as many rules and regulations as far as the passing game goes. Whereas in Portland, Jack taught me that, hey, you got to play. It's a Michael Thompson play. It's a Jim Paxson play. It's a Calvin Hatt play. It's a uh, Kenny Carr play. When you get to Denver and Doug can say, hey, the ball gets back to you, you got the shot, you take it. If you can get to the basket, beat your guy. But if we get down to an isolation, everybody knows it's going to be a three down. Alex is going down to the post and you're going to throw the ball. (laughs) (laughs) George, this is a question for you, and it pertains to today's Nuggets, and it pertains to Coach Doug Moe. Because from what I understand of Doug Moe, you know, he had principles in place, but there was a lot of freedom. And I think it reminds me a lot of when you coached, George, you gave a lot of freedom to players to to improvise, be creative, and, and play freely. How important do you think it is for teams to play freely and do you can do you see with teams that maybe feel too much pressure to hey we do this then we do this then we do this can it take away from the confidence and rhythm of the game? Well, that's a good debate. I mean, my my whole thing is uh, I I loved the game, but when I was at Carolina, we played passing game. Uh, you know, I I played under Doug for a couple of years. We played passing game, and in my coaching career, I was always looking for something like passing game. Uh, you know, when I coached in the CBA, I coached a lot of passing game. But I believe coaches overcoach most of the time. Mm. I think coaches sometimes put handcuffs on their team by coaching too much. Right. And I never wanted to do that. And don't get me wrong, I probably did it some because I wasn't like Doug. Doug was crazy. <laughs> Doug, I mean, Doug, Doug, you know, he would do, he, he had one play passing. And uh, I still think there's a balance to the game that is necessary. But the most important thing is don't, don't shut down the creativity of your right. players. Don't shut down the enthusiasm of your players. And I think coaching does that some of the time. And uh, I think the really good coaches understand flow and the power of playing freely. And with it, when you feel like, I know as a player and your offense is clicking, you feel like you have an extra guy on the court. Right. And when you're on defense, you don't know how to cover it. Uh, and in the same way, when you don't have it, you don't feel, you don't feel any confidence in your game. So, I think today's coaches got to be open to creativity and the versatility and creativity of, of the player. Yeah. More so Adam, than let, ever before. Let, I'll add this, Adam, in regards to what Coach Carlson was just saying. Doug Moe was the most creative-minded coach that I ever played for. And here's why I say that. He could design a play in the course of a game that we had never ran in practice that he would come up with during the course of the game and then say, hey, run this play. And each of those plays that he designed and, and drawn up at that time actually worked. And I was amazed how many times he was able to come up and, and, and come up with a play just because of the way the game was going and the way his mind was thinking because he would just come down and say, okay, now we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to start on the left side. Alex, you're not going to be at the top of the key. You're going to be, you're not going to be at the box. I want you to stay in the middle of the lane. And each one of those plays that he would come up with that would work. And we'd be like, we haven't practiced this. And he's just go out and do it. I love that though. And I love that freedom. And I mean, obviously the team, the Nuggets, this Nuggets team thrived with that freedom. And I, maybe it was the right collection of personalities and talents along with that philosophy that really worked out. Let's take a quick break here. Our one break for the show. When we come back on the other side, I'm going to talk about that famous 1985 playoff run, which happened your first season then, uh, and get into some of the other details about this team. But first, our sponsor today, the people that make this show possible, DraftKings Sportsbook. The NFL playoffs are here. It's wild card weekend. DraftKings Sportsbook is the official sports betting partner of the NFL, and they're kicking things off with a huge offer. Counting down to Super Bowl 56, new customers get 56 to 1 odds on any wild card team to win their games. If you're a new customer, 56 to 1 odds, pick any team you want. If your team wins, uh, then you win uh, that big deal, 280 in free bets. 
you can also hammer the over right now. They always do this where they make it so every thousand people, the, the line goes down a point. It always finishes with the over being like one or two points. So you're going to want to get in on that. That's free money as well. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app right now. Use promo code DNVR and get 56 to 1 odds on any NFL team on Wild Card Weekend. Must be 21 or older. Colorado only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. All right, let's get in. One other trade I want to get into here, Fat, about this team, because I think, again, it pertains to this Nuggets team. It seemed like it was a very soft-spoken v- bunch. I mean, Alex English, an extremely soft-spoken guy. You, you a pretty soft-spoken guy. Is, can that be, is that a positive, uh, a, a, a negative? Does a team need a little bit of loud and, and brash to it in order to succeed? Or can, can, did you guys, do you feel, had the right personality mix of players? I think that's the scenario of Alex. Alex is one of those soft leaders, and he led by example. So whatever he did, we knew he was he was doing it for the best of the team. And there was times when he had to get verbal and vocal at times. But then you had other guys like a Bill Hanslick, who was more of the verbal guy. The mm-hmm. Dan Essel, who was a verbal guy. Calvin Nack, who was a verbal guy. Those guys would put you in a place where you knew what they were saying because they weren't going to lead you astray. If Alex is going down to the box and he's not getting the basketball, he's going to let you know that. So those are the things that you have to relate that they lead in different uh, forms. And Alex was that silent leader. But whatever he said, no matter what it was, everyone was going to follow that lead. And if it was more than by example, then that was the way it was. But Hanslick would come down, and he's not the best player on the, on, the, on the floor, but he wasn't afraid to speak his mind and to get into the other team's mind. And I'll use Draymond Green as that person today, yeah. where he'll get up underneath your skin. And just like the Nuggets game last night in L.A., um, Marquis Boris, he's one of those type of guys that – get under your skin and change the direction of how the game may go. And not to the point where Bill or Calvin was vicious in the forms, in form matter, or if Draymond or Morris is in that regards either, but their leadership is the way they led and got their teams going. And Calvin was known as our enforcer. And a funny story, we were playing Kansas city, um, Sacramento and Denver and would, uh, Mike Woodson goes in for a layup and Hanslick had been guarding the whole time. So he goes in for this layup and Calvin Fousen and Mike Woodson gets up and starts going after the person who created the foul. He looks up and realizes that it's Calvin Nat. And so Mike is like, holy crap. <laughs> and so he starts swinging at Calvin and he realizes who he was swinging at. He starts running around the court to get away from him because he thought, you know, I'm going to get the person who attacked him. And Calvin stood there and looked at him, and it was like, you know, I'm going to hunt you down. And a boxing match, like a a Mike Tyson type of a boxing match. And those are the things that you look at from different players because each is going to lead in a different way. Calvin was that so-called enforcer and got in your face if you had to. Alex was just the opposite. Myself, T.R. Dunn, Mike Evans, and Michael Adams, and uh, Elston Turner, and those guys were going to be more low-key. Wayne Cooper, Danny Shays, Blair, more low-key um, and follow because we were like the third and fourth fiddle on the team, and you didn't want to re- disrupt something that's already going good, and that's right. the way it always followed through, and Doug made sure that everyone knew that. And everyone ex- accepted it and knew their roles, and there was not a problem with it. Let's get into this playoffs here, George, and I'll ask you first. So first year of this playoffs here. So the Nuggets have a great year, fantastic year, your first year there. A lot of momentum. You go up against the San Antonio Spurs, who are led by George Gervin, with all-time great scores in, in NBA history. Um, George Gervin, Coach Carl, what, what's the challenge of guarding him or, or, or beating a team with him? Uh, I thought he's one of the most unguardable players I've ever seen play the game of basketball. I don't think he gets the love he deserves in the NBA today. I mean, you know, we look at Kevin Durant and we say Kevin Durant is the great, the best scorer in the NBA ever. 
Well, I want you to know George Gervin is very, very similar to Kevin Durant. But he could score all over the court probably better than Durant. Really? Gervin, Gervin could score around the basket better than Durant can. Gervin was, I think, probably as good a shooter as Durant, except from the three ball. Right. I mean, for me, I saw Gervin get 40 points sometimes on like 15 shots. I mean, he was not a volume shooter. And I think at times Kevin Durant is a volume shooter. At other times he plays really magnificent. Right. But uh, I think most of the time back then, the way you tried to beat up, uh, you tried to beat Gervin up. He was skinny. He didn't have a great deal, a great deal of strength. And so what, back then, everybody tried to manhandle him a little bit, push him around, beat him up, be physical with him. So that so game one, I don't know how well you remember of this game by game, but I'll try to refresh your memory here. Fact game one, it's a blowout Nuggets win. Alex English has 33. George Gervin's just 16 points. So it's a, a pretty big one. Uh, in game two, George Gervin goes off for 41 points and the Spurs actually win um, by by two points. So this series first two games in Denver and it's a, and it's a split. Um, do you have recollection of how you're feeling? Is this series series shifted back to San Antonio at that point? You know, I'm going to have to go along with Coach Carl with George as far as one of the more underrated scores in the league. And from the standpoint, I've known George, even to this day, we still communicate because for Christmas, we gave out toys in Phoenix at the George Gervin Academy. And so George has a big presence here in Phoenix because when he was playing with the Spurs, he would come in during the summertime and his had family in South Phoenix and we'd go play pickup games. So I got a chance to know him in that way. And to this day, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they're going to do another uh, arena for him in Michigan. So he's known as the scorer. And going back to those playoff games, um, I I would never, ever, ever try to guard a George Gervin. And I had enough problems with a Johnny Moore and the other guards on those teams because the Spurs had that offense and teams that – um, they knew where who was going to be the scores, and they knew how to get them the ball. So, as far as a comparison to uh, Kevin Garnett, very good comparison. Uh, and I think one of the things that Coach Carl said is that not a volume shooter, but a volume scorer, and right. that's what uh, the Ice Man was known for. So game three, um, Nuggets win pretty big, but the Spurs rally back late in the fourth. They almost come all the way back from like 20 down, but Nuggets still pull out the win. In game four, is a guy I don't know anything about. Mike Mitchell scores 37 points in that game, and Spurs get a win. What was Mike Mitchell's game, Coach? Do you remember him? Mike Mitchell was a damn good player. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, he was about 6'8", maybe 6'9". Mm -hmm. uh, you know, could play both in and out. I think he probably preferred to be a physical, you know, as where Gervin wasn't very physical. Um, um, he, he liked to be physical. He could be physical. He could go inside a little bit. And I think in that series, I think Doug would have had a, a dilemma on Hansick, Hanslick, and Nat against Gervin and Mitchell. I mean, that's pretty good. That's two good defenders against really two good offensive players. And my recollection on that team is I thought Mitchell was the key to that team. He was the guy when he played well, they played well. And uh, I don't remember the games per se, but uh, uh, I, I, I think well, this San Antonio of Gilmore in the center position, right? All right. Do they have Gilmore? I think he was there still. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. So that, mm -hmm. you look at that series. That's a pretty talented series mm -hmm. right there. Yep. It was a very good team. And then you go to game five. So it's a decisive back then five-game series, and it's a Nuggets blowout. And now here's the cool thing, Fat. As I'm researching this, I actually found all these games online. So you could actually – a lot of these games, the entire game is online. Of course, the, the quality isn't very good. You know, this old cameras mixed with, you know, compressing these to put them online. But I got a chance to watch, and here's my note. The atmosphere was incredible. I mean, the Nuggets crowd in that season, I couldn't believe how loud. I don't think it gets that loud anymore. What do you remember about McNichols and the Denver fan base during this run? Adam, the other thing that you may not even be aware of, 
How many people people remember the parade that we had uh, in Denver for the teams that uh, during that time? And most people forget about that. That's how crazy that crowd was at McNichols because whenever there was a game, it was full and sold out. Not necessarily sold out, but people were coming to the games because it was almost like they could identify with the players. And during the playoff runs, I mean, when we got to the Lakers series and back and forth, um, it's one of those series where you're always already a winner because they saw how hard the team played and how much they got into the community and started doing things of that nature. Uh, So going back to uh, Mike Mitchell and Artis Gilmore and all those, they talk about George Gervin, but like Coach said, Mike Mitchell and those guys were the force. And, you know, you could say who you're going to put on them, but then once you start worrying about George, you got Artis Gilmore down there too. And then Johnny Moore. So those were guys that, we knew about playing with because at the time Red McCombs was the owner and he lived in San Antonio. So there was other rivalries tied to it in that regard. So bragging rights and everything like that was going on. But um, when you get down to the end of the game, it was a great series because it's going five, not a lot of blowouts, but the competitive spirit that we see. And you got to remember a lot of that, like you're saying, Adam, you can see it on TV now, but there wasn't a lot of other avenues to catch games unless it right. was at that time CBS. <laughs> right. You got to catch them in purpose. That atmosphere was great. You go on to the next round against Utah. And my first question, Utah's a rival, obviously, with Denver now. Were they a rival in 1985 to you? And did that series feel like a rivalry series at all? Fat. Oh, that was for me. Oh, yeah, sorry. Without question. And here's why. Mark Eaton. Yeah. Uh, rest in peace uh, to Terry and Mark and his family because Mark Eaton and I were really good friends uh, before he passed away during the NBA season. We go on trips together during the off season, and so Mark and I had a lot of in, to because of UCLA versus Arizona State college days. So we had a history behind us, and I think one of the most craziest plays during one of those games was uh, we were playing there, and. Doug Moe drafts up a play, and these is where the rivalries come up with Utah, not because of John Stockton and Carl Malone and all those things, but just the mental small pieces of the games that come from the competitive, competitive spirits there. Doug drafts up a, draws up a play for uh, another series, and he's supposed to dribble through the middle. Uh, Daryl Walker is supposed to dribble through the middle, turn, spin, hit Blair, for a little jump shot because Mark Eaton is going to come and stop him and block his shot. And he goes in, he gets in there, Daryl takes the shot. Mark Eaton blocks it all the way back to half court. (laughs) And Blair's wide open in the corner. And the ball goes out of bounds. Doug goes, Daryl, why didn't you pass the ball? And Daryl's like, I was going to win the game for us. He was like, are you an idiot? He says, Blair's wide open, pass the ball, run the play. And then Dale looks at my seven says, was Blair open? (laughs) (laughs) That was the play. So those are the rivalries that existed with the Utah Jazz going back and forth. And then with Denver, because they were rivalries. (laughs) And that goes even into this to today. Um, because of those history with rivalry games and playoff games, and then just the atmosphere to be playing in them because there was two small market teams that were trying to identify themselves. So I have to now, now I have to give you some big props here. I want some of the people that maybe didn't get a chance to watch you. You six foot three. You're about Monte Morris's size, Monte Morris on the Nuggets right yes. now. About, about, about the same size. This is your stat line in game one of that series. 19 points, 18 assists, 16 rebounds. I'm trying to I'm trying to tell people like that that maybe didn't get a chance to watch the '80s Nuggets. Imagine Monte Morris grabbing eight, uh, 16 rebounds in a game on top of all the assists and on top of all the points. What made you such a good rebounder, Adam? That goes back to my high school playing days, and in high school in Tucson, Arizona, every player on our team played every position. So I played point guard, I played shooting guard, I played small forward, I played center. And I played power forward. So 
every guy on our team played all those positions and they were in a mix of them. So one of the like craziest things is we we're playing a state playoff game and we went into the North Carolina um, four corner offense <laughs> and went in the game. So Coach Carl can relate to this, going to the four corner offense and the tallest guy on our team was 6'3". And he was the wow. highest jumping player on the team. And that goes back to my David Thompson stories. Right. Because we had all this, that uh, notoriety. And so I played every position. I was rebounding defense and did all those things. So it started at an earlier age for me. And then going into playing in the NBA, I was ready for it, uh, prepared for it. But you used a comparison between myself and Monty Morris. Will Barton is one of my, is another favorite player of mine that's next to uh, Monty Morris. Yeah. Because I like his game. I like his demeanor. And those two guys have the same type of body build. They're a little more athletic than I was at that time. And especially now, but <laughs> uh, I admire those guys as the way they play. And they won't get those numbers because they've got the best player in the NBA who's going to get those numbers that you just described. And that's going to be the Joker. Well, I love that. Game two, 22 points, 13 rebounds, eight assists, three steals. So are these stats, I mean, this stat line, your your averages over the course of this, this series were insane. In game three, you get hurt in the Nuggets. Only game Nuggets lost in that series. They win 4-1. Uh, they have to finish off the series without you. Mm -hmm. uh, Alex English plays near-perfect basketball in games four and five to close this out. He has 40 points on, I think, 19 or 17 shots in one of those games. So just hyper-efficient. And then you have a matchup with the Showtime Lakers. And this is a matchup between two teams that like to run. So you have – this is great basketball here. First of all, George, do you remember this series? I know you're not a part of, uh, of either of these teams at the time, but do you remember the Nuggets-Lakers of 85? Well, what's kind of funny about it, I do remember it, but I don't remember seeing them in live. Right, you know, right. Today, every game we can watch. Right. But, I, you know, there, there are times, you, you know, you had to go find these games yeah. somehow. Uh, they weren't on NBC or ABA, ABC. They had, they were on local TV, and I don't know if the satellite was working then, but I remember <laughs> going in the bars, and you had to have a code of what mm -hmm. where it was on the satellite to get the game. <laughs> and I think that was the era, they saying 85, so I was in Golden State. And I remember going to a bar in Golden State, and it was on the way home from it. To watch games because there's just they weren't on your TV. You had you to had go to find it. them. Yeah, and so I think because of that, I didn't see many of the games, but I was really involved. I think I remember Doug saying, "We can't beat the Lakers." Right. Yeah. We can't beat the Lakers. They're they're too good. They're the best. Yeah. This is something I remember that series, excited. Adam, from the standpoint too that when I got hurt in the second game against Utah, and I remember I hyperextended my knee. And so I missed a couple games and then came back ready to play in the finals. Then Alex gets hurt. Right, right. This I always say I feel like the Nuggets are cursed, Fat, and it goes back. If I start to tell the series from this moment on, so we're you're in the second round of the playoffs. It's the first year of this team coming together. Like I said, they was Alex English had been there, Doug Moe had been there, but when you and Calvin Nat, Wayne Cooper come together, to me that was a new core. And we're in the year one, second round of the playoffs, rolling. And all of a sudden, the injuries start piling mm -hmm. up. First you, and you don't actually come back until game three against the Lakers. The first game, the Nuggets are, I'm sorry, the Lakers score 80 points in the first half. That's a 139-122 win. The second game, Nuggets storm back, win just as impressively, 136-114. So this is a shootout. This is two teams that are saying, first 130 is going to win this series, is going to win this game. You come back, you only play eight minutes in game three. Do you remember, how are you feeling when you come back and play those eight minutes? Those were the games that Coach Carl can relate to this where it's not load management. It's just a matter of showing that you're ready to play and get out there and to distract the team so that they aren't worried about everything else and they're coming, oh, he's back. He's going to play extra hard now. Whether you play eight minutes or 80 minutes, it's just the mindset that you want to throw the other team. I remember back in, you know, during our era, since there wasn't a lot of social, no social media, but I hated doing interviews the day before the game mm. because the only time the information got out was the following day because uh. the reporters went back, wrote the stories, 
put it in the newspaper the next day, right. and now it became ammunition for the other team to see. Right. Whereas now, I can see it now, and it's going to be all over line in the next five minutes. Yep. So if you did it the day before, it would be in the paper the next day or bulletin board material. If you yeah. did it the day of, well, no one's going to really <laughs> see it until, <laughs> you know, until you get afterwards. to the locker room or to the game, you start talking about it. So That's uh, funny. those were the things that I think it was just more of seeing how I would feel and then to give the message that, hey, he's going to be back in this playoff so that the Lakers would have to think about it. Game four is an all-time great game. I don't know how well you, so Nuggets lose game three. That's the one you come back. Game four, Alex English goes down. So that's why I say the Nuggets are cursed. You're playing against <laughs> no. Magic, Kareem. You're playing against the you know these legends, right? They can't be beaten. And, and history, whenever a team wins, it's like, well, they were inevitable. They were going to win. Mm-hmm. I'm watching this series, and you're hurt. You're down. Now you're on one knee. Alex English is, goes out, and he can't close this game. And this game goes down to the wire. This one is on YouTube. I highly encourage If you only go and watch the end of it, catch the end of it because it's such a great game. The Nuggets, I don't know if you remember this. Nuggets are down six points with about a minute to go. Get a timeout. You drop a a three-pointer. You drop a play for a three-pointer, and I believe it's Turner cashes it. You get a steal on the next possession. You come down. You get another three-pointer cash it. And so you go from down six and you tie the game up and force the Lakers to come down. And the Lakers grab, I think, eight rebounds, offensive rebounds in a row to close out and get the go-ahead bucket. Um, But that's a game where you're down so many different players. You're playing on one leg and playing great, by the way, down the stretch. You can see all the the, the big plays. And it just comes down to one rebound. Do you remember that game five very well? I do. I remember those games from the standpoint that we weren't expected to win. We, were, we, we didn't even have the confidence in ourselves, to be honest, because we were more intimidated by the Lakers than uh, the way we played. So yeah. with that being said, um, Elston makes jump shots, not a great three-point shooter, not a great scorer, but was one of the guys that we counted on for defense and knew that he could score when he had to. So in our minds, we didn't think we could win. But we knew we were going to go out and give it the effort that we had to put in. Calvin Nat hurt Alex English hurt you hurt that at the end of that series and and still put on a great fight. It, we got to speed through. We got to do lightning rounds. We only got about four minutes here, but we're going to do lightning round for the rest of. Uh, we're going to speed through the rest of a career. 1986, you run it back. I'm just curious. The following season, did you feel like, um, you know, were things different? Was there momentum with the with the fan base the following year? I'm moving my phone around. Oh, gosh. Well, we, did we lose something? Yep. My battery was going bad, so I had to change it out. And Well, you're good there. Okay. Hopefully that'll come back. All righty. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. So we'll go here. That next season, I mean, you guys ran it back with the same group pretty much. Um, was there excitement? What were some of the goals, you know, coming off of that Western Conference Finals run? To repeat. 1980. I mean, we... Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, just to repeat. Because we knew what we were doing, we knew what we had in in our coffers to do, and health was an issue. But we also, and I mentioned earlier in the earlier in the conversation about um, management, time management. Never thought about those things, and I think to this day we see a lot of players who have illnesses and, and ailments yeah. because you didn't think about those plays, and you just want to go out and play. So I know for a fact that no holes barred, uh, chopper had everybody as healthy as we could ever get. And when you have players like that that's going out to play, um, you give it all and then you let it end up where it was. And the Lakers actually end up being, what I would say, a better team because of injuries. And we throw that back to some of Coach Calls' teams where injuries is part of the game and that next man up mentality is what you have to deal with. But at the same time, we know that it's part of the game and – the Lakers was more prepared for it than we were. So Nuggets, Nuggets beat the your old team, the Blazers, in the first round. Second round, you fall to Hakeem Olajuwon's Rockets. Coach Carl, everybody knows 90s Hakeem, but 80s Hakeem was putting up some crazy numbers. What do you remember about uh, Hakeem in, in, in that 1986 season? I think, you know, the one thing um, – that it came that he brought he brought skill and athleticism to the center position. Most of the time, the center position was bulky, big, right? Uh, protector of the rim, and the king did it in a different way. He did it with 
with quickness. He did it with finesse. He did it with good footwork. He was a shot blocker with a quick jump. Uh, he played both ends of the court very, very well. And every year in his young career, because I think he was pretty young at that year. It might have been his first, maybe his second or third year in the league. Yeah, something like that. And, uh, I mean, we were just marveling at, okay, we now got a 6'11 athlete on the floor. And that didn't really exist a lot at that right. time in the NBA. It exists a little bit more now. But I think right now, if you ask almost NBA guys, Akeem would go down as probably the most skilled and athletic basketball player at the center position. No question about it. We got to speed through these fats. So I'm going to keep, keep it moving here. 1987, Calvin Nat tears his Achilles on opening night. Another one of these, you have a great team. It's like, let's run it back. Let's do it. Opening night, you lose one of your top players. Um, it, that season goes on. You end up getting swept by the 87 Lakers, which in my opinion, one of the all-time great teams. Um, they were, they were really good that year. Um, 1988, same team. You add Michael Adams and Jay Vincent. Um, Doug Moe wins Coach of the Year. You're named an All-Star for the first time. Do you remember? What do you remember about being named to the All-Star team for the first time? Scared to death. <laughs> and once again, that goes back to I went to that game with a, just like the trade we talked about earlier, and I went to that game with Alex English. And I was able to follow his lead and follow everywhere he went. And I remember getting going to the game and just paranoid because that's that big atmosphere limelight and but one of the greatest times i had and that was in chicago in the last chicago all-star game i was with the retired players association and alex there was with me and we was in shula steakhouse and they had a photo of myself and alex english walking onto the floor together during that all-star game and of course it. i tried to steal it off the wall but they probably would have arrested me. <laughs> so so Alex, Alex and I took a picture next to it. And so that was a very fun memory. And that was the time where I realized that, okay, I, the belonging time is when you make your first All-Star game. I love, I love that. And that, by the way, some years you go look at the All-Stars, you go, okay, the guy's pretty good. 1988. Go look at that roster. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Akeem Olajuwon. And there's I mean, some of the all-time 20 best players ever, and you got half of them are on, on that All-Star game. So that's a heck of an All-Star one. Um, we got to speed through. Just 89, just going through this here. You play Phoenix. You get swept in the first round. But you had a game. Game one is a, a, a two-point game, I believe. You had 20 points, 12 rebounds, 17 assists, four steals. Again, I'm just giving the – I'm, I'm wanting all the new generation players to see some of these playoff numbers. Uh, that fat lever put up not not just regular season numbers but playoff numbers for a six three point guard and then of course in 1990 your last run uh you go down to the san antonio spurs with david robinson um a couple quick questions i want to ask you i'm going to ask you some perspective on the nuggets right now you were the mr triple double for the nuggets all the way up until the new mr triple double or the or nikola Jokic has come and taken your record and is now extending it in denver nuggets history um first of all you've mentioned him a few times what, what is your opinion of, of Nikola Jokic, and, and how do you enjoy watching him play? Adam, that's my man crush. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I love the way he plays. I love the way he carries himself on and off yeah. the court. And when I was doing some of the broadcast games or just watching some of the games when I was going to visit, and the way he carries himself off the court in, in the locker room with the kids where he runs – down the hallways we see on TV, but he's always got something to do with whatever kid he runs across in the hallway. So that demeanor I thought was just amazing for someone of his statue, of his size, and the way that he carries himself. So he's one of those silent leaders like Alex English, and he gets it done off the, uh, on the court better than anyone that we see in modern day. No question about it. And then your jersey being retired in 2017, that was a long time coming. You know, you were 1990 was your last year. 2017, the jersey finally retired. What, what did that moment mean to you? Adam, when that first happened, I was so surprised when Josh Kroenke actually introduced me to, uh, prepare, to prepare me for it. I was there doing some other work outside of the Nugget stuff. And before practice, he calls out and, and gives me the honor. 
and tells me what it's uh, you know in front of a crowd of of staff and members and George, coach Carl and Lisa Johnson and also Loretta Harmon and all they were there two of my all favorite family right. members from the Denver Nugget days but they were there and I was just so surprised didn't expect it and when it happened uh I was in odd but my uh, coach Malone was there at the time who I was with in Sacramento as well and presented it and acknowledged me about it and if um they had called me on the phone and did it over the phone I would have been crying but since <laughs> I was in public I wouldn't let them see me cry <laughs> well there you go George do you have anything else before we wrap up here with fat we went a little bit long here and I appreciate you guys hanging around well, I mean, first of all, 27 years to wait to get in on the, on the, this number of retired is a little ridiculous, but. Uh, Strong agree. Nuggets haven't always I, been good about that, those types of things. I mean, I mean, Fat Lever to me was in the 80s. There were these teams like the, the Lakers. We talk about the Lakers and the Spurs, but all those teams had a glue guy. Like the Lakers, no one ever talks about James Worthy or Michael Cooper. And James Worthy was a hell of a player. And then, you know, San Antonio. I mean, David Robinson is really good. And and Duncan was really good. But Ginobili's a hell of a player. And that's the kind of way I looked in, in Denver. A lot of guys talked about the, you know, Alex English and Calvin Nat and But the glue guy with the Denver Nuggets was the guy we're talking to today. I love that. I love that so much. Fat. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell these stories and, and share some of your insight. It was absolutely fantastic getting to know you and, and, and getting to talk with you. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. Coach Carl, love you, my man. I got a lot of wishes from you from some of the old guys. Uh, Alton Lister and James oh, Edwards yeah. told me to tell you hello. <laughs> Alton is always great. He always had a joke, man. I always loved him. He hit I, I, I have a long story I should tell you something about him. It's great. Well, I, you got my number. Call me and let me know who can have that conversation. I'm ready. Thanks, guys. Thank you so Bless much. You. Everybody Thanks, else, guys. we'll see you next week. Brand new episode.